Good morning. Welcome again to In Town Church. We're so glad to have you in worship with us. As we have been through our Lenten season, we did a series on the prophets of repentance, looking at mostly the minor prophets, but also uh, the prophecy of Jesus. And now that as we have moved out of the Easter Lenten season, we're going to jump back into the series that we were doing beforehand, the Gospel of Luke. We're going to pick up where we left off now in chapter 7. And this is our gospel reading. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii. The other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet. With her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests begin to say some among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, what we are doing this morning in many ways is very presumptive. We're stepping into your presence in hope that you will receive us again. That which is sinful is coming into the presence of that which is holy. But we see how you deal tenderly with this woman, and we have hope. We sit under the critique of your word, but we know that it will not in the end crush us, but it is designed to lift us up, to give us new life. Lord, let us see our sin through the lens of this story. Let us see our sin at its very worst, at its very depth, so that we can therefore see your forgiveness, that we can fall madly in love with you and that that love would spill over into our relationships with others, into our work as individuals and our work as a church. Father, would you make it so? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been studying along, uh, following along in our study of Luke, if you were here a few weeks ago, you re- probably heard the first line. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to dinner. 
and you think, "Uh uh-oh, here we go again. Luke is going to tell us the same story again. This collision between Jesus and the Pharisees is happening over. And this has been one of the consistent devices that Luke uses to help us understand what true forgiveness is. Help us understand what true religion is, what Christianity is all about. We see the holiest of men, the best of men, the most religious of men oppose Jesus consistently. And we see the most unassuming, the most modest, the most sinful people that you can imagine receive him and fall in love with him. Luke keeps telling us this in different ways over and over because we apparently are so hard-headed. We don't get it. We don't understand this. This is not how we instinctively think about the way religion should be and the way that Christianity should be. But we need to hear it again. And this morning, he's saying it again in a new way, in a way that's utterly scandalous, in a way that's utterly shocking. In fact, it's a little bit unseemly. It's kind of PG-13, so you may be glad that your children have left if they're under 10. It's very off-color, maybe even a little R-rated. We're going to see three things in this passage. We're going to see a courageous sinner. We're going to see a daring Savior. And we're going to see a radical salvation. Courageous sinner, daring Savior, and a radical salvation. So let's first of all set up the scene under courageous sinner. This Pharisee named Simon invites Jesus over to dinner. And we see right off that Jesus' kingdom is open to all. That yes, he is called to the poor, to the marginalized, to the oppressed, to those who are not the religious elite. He goes to them, but he goes to Simon also. He accepts Simon's invitation, even though we've read repeatedly of this conflict that he has with the Pharisees, that they're out to get him. He receives this invitation. He goes into his home. Now, homes in that time had a very open floor plan. And when you had a religious dinner, a religious feast like this, the doors were left open and the neighbors could walk in and they couldn't participate, but they could listen in on the theological discussion that was going on. These tables were very low to the ground. And so you leaned in with your elbow and you had your legs out to the side. That's what it means reclining at the table. That's a, it's a position of comfort. It's a position of discussion. And all of these holy men are having this theological discussion, most likely. And someone crashes the party. Neighbors could come in. Other religious people could come in, but not a prostitute, not someone like this woman, a woman of the city. Doesn't mean she's a municipal worker. means she's a sex worker. She rents her body out. She's embraced privately, but then scorned and rejected publicly. She humiliates herself and uses her body just to get by. And she crashes the dinner party of all the respectable people. Now, Luke doesn't tell us why she comes or what she knows about Jesus. Maybe she's had a personal encounter with him previous to this, but we know why she ends up coming. What she's heard about Jesus gives her the courage to come, to take this outrageous, this shocking step of a woman, a prostitute, a sinner walking into the home of a religious person and coming up to anoint Jesus. Now she walks up behind him and she has this alabaster jar, which in those days 
was almost like a retirement plan. It was kind of a 401k plan that when a prostitute, they would use it for perfume because obviously in those days, baths were very uncommon. And so smell was very important. And so they would carry around this alabaster jar around their neck. And as they made money, as they, they would buy more perfume, they'd buy a more expensive jar. And then as their beauty faded, as they grew old, they would have this jar that they could then sell, that they could then live off the proceeds. And so it was very, very valuable, especially to someone in this line of work. And so she takes it, intending to anoint Jesus with it, but she doesn't get very far. She begins weeping. She begins crying, the kind of weeping that you only see at a funeral, not the kind of weeping that you, you have when you go to a sad movie, not the kind of crying that Steve does on a weekly basis here, but weeping, weeping. She cried so hard that the tears rolled down her cheeks and drip onto Jesus' feet. Her only care in the world is Jesus. The opinions of others just disappear into the background. Do you remember the movie Pretty Woman? The very rich guy, he's in town in L.A. to buy a company worth millions, and so he rents out this prostitute for a week, rents out Julia Roberts, and then he brings her to the swankiest hotel in town. He takes her to the most uh, uppity shops on Rodeo Drive. And they all look at her with scorn. Who is this person that you've brought into, into my place of business? She doesn't belong here. But why does she care? She, I'm with him. Talk to him. He's the one that brought me here. And that's exactly what's happening here. Is the prostitute comes up behind Jesus and begins weeping. And all eyes shift to Jesus What is Jesus going to do? What is this rabbi? What is this teacher going to do? How is he going to respond? Now, what happens next is even more shocking. She takes down her hair and dries his feet. And this is the place where it gets a little bit PG-13 because the only place that a woman could take down her hair in that culture was in the privacy of her home, only in the presence of her husband. In fact, in the Talmud, taking down the hair was equal to exposing one's breasts publicly. That's how scandalous this action was. The only way that we can understand it is if someone, a woman came in here this morning topless. That's what's going on here. Or maybe if a topless woman comes into your home, into your dinner party, trying to find one of your guests, what would you expect of your guest at that point. Well, virtue demands outrage. Virtue demands throwing a cloak over her and taking her out the back door, maybe even having her arrested. And so all eyes go to Jesus. What's he going to do as this topless woman comes and asks for a blessing, as she comes and anoints him, as she comes and pours perfume and tears over his feet? How is he going to respond? He speaks to her. He turns towards her and looks at her. He talks to her. He allows her to touch his feet, which would have rendered him religiously unclean. According to Leviticus, if you touch something unclean, then you're now unclean and you need to go to the priest. 
So he's no longer welcome at that table anymore because he, the savior of the world, is now unclean. Social convention is a very powerful thing. Early this morning, we passed the 100th anniversary of the Titanic sinking. Sometime in the night, the Titanic went down. And as witnesses will say that there was some panic, but it took a couple of hours for the ship to go down. And social convention takes over. And we see this dramatized famously in the movie Titanic, Titanic, James Cameron's version, where the first class gets seats on the boat, where the second class and the third class are left to drown and die. That's the, the dark side of it. But there's another side. There's a heroic side, or maybe we should say a, a chivalric side, where men step out of the boats in order to give their seats to women and children because that was considered socially right. That was considered socially, a social demand during that time. And we see men going to their deaths to do what is right according to social convention. That's how powerful it was. There's one story of a Japanese gentleman who was, a, was standing on the side, and he was looking around. There was one seat left, and the, the, the hallway or the, the bow was empty at that part. And they said, come on in, get in the boat, you're going to die. And he says, no, 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 I cannot get in. There's got to be a woman or a child somewhere that can take my seat. He's convinced to get in. And then he goes home safely to Japan and is scorned for the rest of his life because he's considered a coward for taking care of his own life. Social convention is very powerful and it demands that this woman stay out of this house and it demands that Jesus now reject her and send her away. But she's carefree, or maybe we should say careless. What does social convention matter to me? I'm with him. I'm with the Savior. Take it up with him. I'm here on his account. I'll do whatever it takes to get close to Jesus. Friends, when Jesus is the center of your affection, when pursuing him is at the center of your life, what other people think matters less and less. What is right according to social convention falls into the background. People's opinions, negative and positive, begin to disappear, begin to fade into the background because you are centered upon Jesus. Other people's thoughts no longer drive you in the way they did, but you live with daring. You say, I'm with him. Take it up with him. I'm with the Savior. What he thinks about me is the only important thing. His opinion is the only opinion that matters in this entire room. What he says and thinks is the only important thing. This makes for a courageous sinner that will walk through social convention at all costs to get to Jesus to do what is actually right. It's a courageous sinner trying to get to a daring Savior. The host, Simon, what's his response to Jesus? We saw the response of the prostitute, of the woman. It's weeping, it's tears. She is utterly coming apart when she comes near Jesus. What does Simon say? Well, his internal monologue goes like this. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. 
And it shows his real intent at bringing Jesus here in the first place. Why did he invite Jesus into his home? He's testing him. He's heard things about him. He's heard about this rabbi who is going around healing people and preaching the good news of the kingdom. But he wants to see for himself. He receives Jesus into his home, but with serious reservations. And now they're utterly confirmed. We see two people interacting with Jesus with two very different, very opposite responses. The woman comes in with personal investment, with emotion, with self-sacrifice. She's laying her profession. She's laying her reputation. She's laying everything down to be close to Jesus. Simon comes in with cold detachment, with emotional distance. He's examining and scrutinizing Jesus and everything he does, and he's examining and scrutinizing this woman. And his conclusion is that she is the sinner. She is defiling my dinner party. She should not be here. Becoming a Christian, friends, is much more like falling in love than it is solving a math problem. Falling in love is not scientific. It's not entirely rational. It can be irrational at times because you're drawn up into something. You're taken on a journey. Of course you want evidence of reciprocal love. Of course you investigate the facts of how this person is responding. There's got to be some evidence that there's a reciprocal relationship there. But there's also great mystery. There's also great confusion at times. But the one thing you can't do when you fall in love is keep an emotional distance. The one thing you can't do when you fall in love is stay emotionally detached. By its very nature, you are connecting yourself with this person no matter what. Their pains, their struggles, their joy become shared by you. This relationship, a love relationship, a true loving relationship will utterly change you. It'll grip you. You are drawn out of your independence and your isolation. And so the question for us is are we going to approach Jesus with cold detachment? Are we going to approach Jesus just with our rational minds and say, what does he have to offer? Does he bear up under my considerations? Does he meet my conditions? Or are you coming to Jesus with your alabaster flask? Are you willing to leave all? No matter where the trail leads, are you all in? Now, maybe you're here this morning questioning. You're not sure if Jesus is actually who he said he is, but the question is still valid. The question still stands. Are you all in no matter where the trail leads? Are you all in even if what you discover threatens the very center of who you are? If it challenges everything that you think you know, are you all in? Becoming a Christian is like falling in love. It's not solving a math problem. It's being drawn into a journey. It's coming out of your independence and your isolation and aligning yourself with Jesus. And that's what this woman does. She's all in, no matter what, no matter what it costs, whether it cost her a 401k, it cost her her reputation, it cost her the scorn of other people. She's all in. Nothing can keep her from Jesus. This woman... This cultural reject brings everything. And Simon stands back with cold detachment. You see, Jesus has challenged his core beliefs. 
and he won't change. He can only reject him. And this is why Jesus then publicly undresses him in his own house. Richard Burton, not the actor, but the explorer from the 18th 18th century, says uh, he spent years exploring the Middle East, and he says, shame is a passion with Eastern nations. Your host would blush to point out to you the indecorum of your conduct, and the laws of hospitality oblige him to supply the every want of a guest, even though he be a detenue. That's a detainee. I had to look it up. You see, the, the social convention, the laws of hospitality mean that the guest must supply, the host must supply the guest with anything he wants. Never would you point out the indecorum of one of your guests. The possibility that a guest would point out the indecorum of a host is so remote that Burton doesn't even mention it. And yet Jesus The daring Savior does exactly that. He defends this woman. He speaks to this woman, this woman who's made a charade of this whole night. He defends her. He talks to her. He points out how she is the righteous one, not the host. Do you see this woman, Simon? He expresses kindness to this courageous woman, in a time of need, in a time where she is the object of scorn and rejection. He talks to her. He treats her as a human. Do you, Simon, see this woman? I came into your house. I became your guest, and you withheld from me the most basic conventions of hospitality, the most customary things that you as a host are required to give to your guest. You didn't do it. Yet this woman, this prostitute who you magnificently despise has done everything that you were supposed to. She's compensated for your failure. You see, the woman has noticed this social slight. The alabaster jar, the putting the perfume on, on his feet was premeditated. She came prepared to do that, but she never expected to find in a respectable home one of the guests with dirty feet. She was blown away. And so she didn't bring a towel. She didn't expect to have to do that. She's doing what was Simon's job. She begins crying and weeping over her own situation so much that she can wash Jesus' feet with her tears. There's no towel, so she has to take down her hair to dry off her feet. The anointing was premeditated. This was utterly spontaneous. She's doing for Jesus what Simon should have done. To omit a guest water to wash his feet would have been a major slight. And there were very established conventions for giving a kiss of greeting. To an equal, you kiss them on the cheek. To a teacher or to a superior, you kiss them on the hands. Only an animal, only a slave would kiss someone on the feet. And that's what she does. Simon invites Jesus into his home and treats him with utter contempt. Simon won't even offer a kiss of customary greeting, and yet this woman won't stop kissing his feet. Simon doesn't offer him water to wash his feet, yet this woman washes her feet with her tears. Simon is saying, Jesus, I am your superior. The woman is saying, Jesus, I am your subject. Wherever it leads, I am yours. I will kiss your feet. I am your slave. And Jesus dares to point this out. He challenges the very definition of sinner and righteous. 
What he's saying is that there's not one sinner here, there's two. Simon, you too are a sinner. The first, the sinful woman, offers hospitality and love to Jesus. The second, the sinful man, apparently has no awareness of his own sin. He sees himself with very few spiritual debts and is able to look down his nose at the sinful woman and even at Jesus himself. According to religious convention, it was the woman who defiled the dinner party, who made it unclean. But Jesus, because he reads the heart, says it's Simon. Simon, you are the one that makes this dinner unclean, not the woman. It's the moral achiever, not the moral failure, who needs reckoning, who defiles the table. The great unrepentant sinner is Simon not the woman. It's the stunning reversal of everything that the religious community held, de- held dear. And Jesus dares to point it out in their own home. And he says in conclusion to the woman, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Don't think about what everyone is saying. Don't think about the fact that they're all looking at you like an utter outcast. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. It is a radical salvation, and it will do three things if we'll let it. Three things in conclusion. This radical salvation will change our idea of religion. It will change our idea of forgiveness, and it will change our idea of sin. First of all, it changes our idea of religion. In our culture, it doesn't matter oftentimes so much what you believe. There are lots of different options. You sort of just pick the ones that work for you, or you interchange them, you syncretize them, and so forth. There are lots of options, but what matters is what you do with what you believe, how you live afterwards. If you're a good person, if you help other people, if you live a very authentic life, then you're okay. Religion is a sort of personal code to live by. It's a set of values. It's something that you choose. You pull off the shelf and begin to appropriate it in your life in the way that you want. That's kind of our common cultural assumptions about what religion is and how it should be lived out. In this passage, it's exactly the opposite. What Jesus is saying is that sort of religion is a recipe for cold detachment. This woman is far from a good person. She's far from a good citizen. She'd fail every test that you gave her. Simon, on the other hand, is clearly a good person, a good citizen. He's upstanding. He's in his, on, on the up and up in his career. On anyone's scale of personal morality and citizenship, she would fail and he would succeed. But when she runs into true religion, into Jesus, she's melted. She weeps. She's utterly destroyed, while Simon is indignant. Jesus is saying to both of them and to you and I, there's nothing you've ever done that puts God into your debt. And there's nothing that you've ever done that puts you so far removed from God that he'll disregard you. Your past record is meaningless. When you hear that, You must respond one of the two ways. You must be melted into sadness and grief over your own sin, or you must become indignant and say, I don't want to live like that. Look what I've done. I would have to get rid of my record and all the things that I stand upon and the way that I look down at other people. I would have to give up everything. 
when you run into Jesus, when you run into that sort of proclamation, you become either the sinful woman and you weep or you become Simon and you're indignant. We've got to choose this morning which one we're going to be. You see, Simon becomes indignant because he so carefully crafted his record that he rejects this out of hand. The woman, however, fully embraces it because she knows where she's been. She knows her past. The best person in the room is publicly corrected by Jesus, and the absolute worst person in the room is held up as a model, as an exemplar, because she gets it. You see, Christianity, friends, she knows the gospel The message of Jesus is not about what you do to get up to God. It's about what he has done to come down to you. It's not you going up. It's him coming down. It's him giving you his record, his righteousness, independent and in spite of everything that you have done well or you have done wrong. The woman weeps when she hears this. Simon rejects it. It changes our attitude of religion. It changes our attitude, our idea of forgiveness. Jesus tells a parable, and it shows that it's never rules that change our heart. It's never rules that lead to love. It's always grace. It's always forgiveness. You see, we have two debtors and we have two debts. You, Simon, have many sins. You have many debts. I've just pointed out some of them. I'm not even talking about what you've done before tonight, but These social slights are enough to show that you have need, but you don't see it. The difference between you and the woman is that you don't see your sin, and she does. Seeing has been tremendously important in this passage. Simon rejects Jesus because he doesn't see that this woman is a sinner, but he does see. In fact, he sees not only that she's a sinner, but he sees Simon's heart and what's really going on. He sees this internal monologue that Simon is having. He also sees this woman and asks Simon to do the same. He wants Simon to see her not as an abstraction, not one-dimensionally, not in the fact that she is a reprobate. He wants, her to, he wants him to see her as he does, as a real person in need of real forgiveness who's broken and falling and coming to the right person. This woman sees her sin, but sees forgiveness in Jesus, but Simon doesn't. He sees her sin, but not his own. And because of this, he has little sense of forgiveness. This parable is meant to point out to Simon Jesus says, Simon, you have forgiven little, have been forgiven little, so naturally you love little. That's how it works. Simon, you're not evidencing love because you don't see yourself as a forgiven sinner. It's obvious to everyone but you. How big of a debt do you think that you owe this morning? We're confronted with the question, of how big of a need do we think that we personally have? How big of a sinner are we? Probably Simon, as uncomfortable as it may be, is the one that's most like you and I in this parable. We've gotten this idea, perhaps, that the Pharisees are nasty people and we want to be done with them and reject them and so forth, but that's not true. Pharisees were the ones that showed up to church on Sunday morning. In fact, they didn't go skiing and skip church. They were here each and every week. You're here this morning. 
it's more likely that you're like Simon rather than the woman, or at least you identify with Simon. Simon was a paragon of virtue. He was a good person, but his pride blinded him to his sinfulness and to his need. He doesn't see his own sin, and so therefore he doesn't see the depth of Jesus' love. The woman does. She sees her sin, and so accordingly she sees the depth of Jesus' love. She experiences it, and it melts her. It's never the rules that lead to love, only grace, only forgiveness. The woman is in need of a lot of forgiveness, and when she gets it, she falls madly in love with Jesus. She's melted, and all she wants is to get near him. Tears, weeping over sin, love for Jesus can never be manufactured. It can't just be conjured up. It's a fruit. It's a fruit of forgiveness. It's a response to grace. When you see yourself like the woman, when you see yourself in utter desperate need of Jesus, and when you get it, it will melt your heart. It will cause you to live a life of love. It'll overflow into the other parts of your love and in other parts of your life and relationships. The gospel, the real message of Jesus, changes our idea of religion, changes our idea of forgiveness, and finally, changes our idea of sin. No matter how much we this morning are aware of our sin, we probably still have categories that go something like this. There are certain types of sin that we kind of brush under the table, and there's certain types of sin that are really, really important. The really bad people do that. And it allows us to look down our nose at other people. And generally, it's the sins that we do most commonly that are over here, that are not really all that important. And it's the sins over here that other people do. These are the 50 denarii sins, and these are the 500 denarii sins. We have categories in our mind. You see, there's, there's murder, and there's child molestation, and there's bigotry, and racism, and spousal abuse. And those are all really terrible 500 denarii sin. But over here, there's laziness, there's pride, there's gossip, there's self-ambition, there's materialism, there's self-righteousness. These are the 50 denarii sins. And so long as we don't do these things, we feel very okay about this. We give ourselves a lot of credit. And therefore, we don't see salvation as a radical, life-melting event because we just need a little help. We need a little improvement. Jesus comes in and kind of fills in the gaps and fixes what's broken, but he doesn't forgive us of murder, of bigotry, of spousal abuse. In pastoral ministry, I've never fortunately had to deal with a suicide or a suicide attempt, and I hope I never do. It's a terrible, terrible moment. And I can't imagine a more painful moment for the family, but ironically, a more honest moment for the person involved. It may have been the first time that they're being honest to begin with. A very close friend of mine got a call, and one of his parishioners had attempted suicide. And she had survived, and so she's in the hospital. hospital and so he and his wife go and just sit with her. She's 19. She had tried to commit suicide and had survived. I mean, can you imagine a more shameful thing than botching your own suicide in terms of how the culture would think about you? And she's sitting here in her hospital bed, and they just sit with her for hours and hours. And she finally begins to talk and open up about what happened and about why. And she says something very profound. Why did you try to commit suicide? 
She says, I couldn't take the pretending anymore. She's 19, and she gets it. She's seen there's a lot of pretending, a lot of charades that we're all involved with, and she couldn't take it anymore. She was doing the very same thing, and it was crushing her. And she says, I just am going to take this way out. I'm done. I'm not going to pretend anymore. You and I often pretend about a lot of things. We pretend we're okay. We pretend we've got it all together. We pretend that we don't really have a big obvious need in our lives. We may give kind of some credence to Jesus, but in reality, we try to pretend that we're all all right. But it wears us out, and we become cold and detached, just like Simon. You see, pretenders don't experience an outpouring of love. Pretenders don't weep in the presence of other people. Pretenders don't go against social convention in order to get to Jesus. Pretenders play it cool. Pretenders wear a smile. Pretenders don't let other people in to help them because there's no need. This woman was no pretender. She comes in and weeps. She falls apart at the feet of Jesus. She doesn't care who is looking. She saw her sin, and it utterly destroyed her in all the ways that our sin should destroy us as we look at it. We should be so overwhelmed and utterly destroyed in our self-righteousness that we come weeping to Jesus. But often instead, we pretend. We wear masks. We play games. But friends, it will wear you out. Jesus is saying, come, please, come to me and experience true forgiveness. Meet real and lasting mercy. Jesus' consistent message is that I've come to pay all of your debts, no matter how great. I've come to grant you forgiveness. But to experience it, you've got to see your debt. You've got to see your utter moral failures. Then and only then will you come. Then and only then will you understand the depth and extravagance of God's love insofar as you see the extravagance of your own sin. Does your Christianity make room for prostitutes? Does your Christianity make room for a topless woman coming into church this morning and hearing Jesus say to her, go in peace, your sins have been forgiven. Your faith has healed you. You will if you've seen yourself in that place. If you've seen yourself in her shoes, the utter scorn of everyone and in utter need of Jesus in desperation, then you have a heart of love towards those who are the worst people, towards those who don't have it all together, and even, yes, towards the pretender, as Jesus does in this parable. He goes in the pretender's home. He responds to the invitation. Friends, respond to that invitation to radical salvation that will heal you of everything, no matter how great. Come and feast upon him as we come to this table. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Luke, that he is so careful to tell us these difficult stories, to invite us into the narrative where we identify with a character, where we begin to see ourselves in utter desperate need. And I pray that if nothing else happens this morning, that that would be what we leave with, that we are utterly sinful, needy people 
in need of your salvation, your radical grace. Father, give it to us again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.